Today is November 10th. 2023 you're listening to the cole memo i'm your host cole preston in this episode we're going to be hearkening back to the good old days when hash wednesday was a thing if you don't know what hash wednesday is we'll just sit tight we'll tell you about it every episode is released in audio video and transcript format to find the transcript audio or video version of any episode please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. This episode will have some visuals today, so you might want to tune into the video version of this podcast. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episodes, and then you'll be able to find the audio, video, or transcript version. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. Super important. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode a little bit later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's the Cole Memo dot com slash p-a-t-r-e-o-n it's a great way to dis- to support our show but one of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free subscribe to or follow our show leave a positive review tell your friends and family about it your engagement and support is appreciated today i'm joined joined by an old friend who uh joined me several times on my old show the chillinoy podcast Buds, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself or maybe even reintroduce yourself uh, to longtime fans of my work? Well, I've, like I said, I've been here before. I'm trying to control a cat here. It's jumping around in front of me. So anyway, he's he's down on the floor a little disappointed. I, I gave him a little love. So that, hopefully that holds him for now. Any case, yeah, I'm, um, well, let's put it this way. I'm an older fella. <laughs> I've been around for a long time, including for relatively early editions of Hash Wednesday. I uh, started smoking uh, cannabis in Germany because I was a military dependent, and that's all we had over there was hash. And uh, so took a bit of getting used to coming back to the, to the world, as we used to say from over there. I came back right about the time that Colombian was getting to be a big deal here in this country, uh, sort of superseding Mexican to a certain extent. Uh, but both of them were kind of disappointing after the hashish end of things. I uh, made my first attempt at growing in 1975. It was unsuccessful. But then a few years later, uh, Jimmy Carter started poisoning, <laughs> trying to poison people by spraying weed with Paraquat. And uh, that's what got me into growing, uh, and I've been pretty much a grower ever since, with a few interruptions. And uh, but uh, I guess that's sort of the basic introduction. Um, I've yeah. uh, been a been a long time uh, sort of political activist too, and I think that's an important part of this story. So we'll we'll talk about that a bit here in a little while. Yeah. And I just have to say, you know, thank you not only for your service to this country, but for your service to uh, the the cannabis movement. So, um, you've been it's in been it for a, a while. It, 
it's been important to me to do that because uh, I've always seen cannabis as a human rights issue. Uh, not all of my associates have always been so clear cut about that, but I think we've moved in that direction in general. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, buds, when did you first ha yeah. When did you first hear about hash Wednesday before you say what it is from your perspective? Can I just, you know, when did you first hear about it and how did you first hear about it? Well, uh, probably read about it in the, the news gazette because i've always been a, a newspaper reader and uh, that would have been 1980-ish or thereabouts um because they obviously reported on it in a very disapproving manner for a long time uh, if if not always but uh, uh that's how i found out about it and uh and being a political activist i decided to get involved early on yeah, and I know that you saw you you I shared with you this this archive that I've gotten my hands on uh, from a really awesome source. Um, I just want to share some images. Like you say, the News Gazette has been covering Hash Wednesday since uh, well, 1981, uh, at least <laughs> in this in this uh, section here. Well, Jim uh, Day is still around and still fulminating from the right wing. <laughs> okay, Jim Day, I didn't even realize. So yes, yes, yes. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, here's uh, some more here from the '80s. That just to prove your point, uh, there was you know some reporting on Hash Wednesday back in the day. Yes. Um. So yeah, what you think? Maybe you probably heard about it from this coverage. Um, what, uh, when you finally went to it the first time, do you, um, yes. I'm going to throw two questions your way. Okay. Um, what was hash Wednesday? And I, I'm just curious how you felt at your first hash Wednesday, but first, what was hash Wednesday from your perspective? Well, hash Wednesday obviously was a bit of a party. I uh, students letting go uh it's sort of in a long tradition i'm trying to remember what the exact term is sociologically but sort of uh where people let their hair down for one day a year or whatever uh you know where chaos rules to a certain extent many cultures have this sort of event uh so in in that sense it's that but it was all a political thing uh although that wasn't always as clear as it probably became clear later on, uh, I think in part because some of us pushed it in that direction, certainly, uh, because people were protesting an unjust situation, unjust laws, unjust actions by the state against its citizens. Yeah. And uh, when you went, when did you go to your first Hash Wednesday? Do you remember your first Hash Wednesday? I am pretty sure it was 1982. Very cool. Very cool. And yes. do you remember how you felt at that Hash Wednesday? What was it like? Uh, it was uh, pretty crowded. It was uh, a bit chaotic. Um, I know I went there with a clear-cut agenda to, to push the pol political side of things. Um, one of the things that helped with that is I was working full-time. 
uh, but I was working on the night shift. <laughs> so that left the days open uh, to, to show up at Hash Wednesday without, you know, even taking time off from work. And so that was a good thing. It also allowed me to sort of uh, organize people from where I work, too. So uh, that drug along some other people. All of us, of course, were not students, uh, just working folks in the community who all were cannabis users and had an obvious interest in advancing this cause. Yeah. And uh, now this footage I'm about to share is from 1978, but I'm just curious did it look like did it look like this um generally yeah. speaking yeah it did except maybe a little bit more crowded uh, maybe a little less obvious relaxing smoking weed and stuff okay so they were maybe kind of little... keeping it on the down low well uh, it it kind of varied basically there was a large crowd and uh, people were, by then, you know, the, the police had sort of started applying pressure. I mean, there wasn't a, a number of arrests or anything. I don't recall specifically 82 unless we have a, a site here from uh, the archive, so to speak. But uh, it was much more crowded, the one I remember, than this one. And yeah. more of a demonstration sort of thing with people milling around and there were even counter demonstrators there which i've got a story or two about that <laughs> interesting i have a story about a counter demonstrator as well um did it look like you see how this crowd was so you're saying yes. you think it was bigger than this um i think so i mean the, the camera angle is low here it looks like sure. the quad is full but i'm sure it's probably not more than about a third of the way down yeah uh, but, but basically it assembled uh, on the south side of the Illini Union. The steps there are sort of, you know, a stage, so to speak. It's not really tall or anything, but it certainly helped get you up to where you can uh, speak out and be heard clearly. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, let, yeah, let's check if I've got any um, citations from the 80, 82. I've only got a letter to the editor Mm -hmm. um, which is about a squad that champagne was going to roll out. I don't know if you want to, if you know anything about that. And I've got um, a big article um, from, I believe, I don't know, it's from the News Gazette, but I believe it's about something that Rantoul was doing um, with regard to making paraphernalia uh, illegal. Well, one of the things, and I'm not sure about the exact timing on this, uh, this is a little bit after what I'm going to recall here. Um, in, I believe it was 1978, mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, there was a head shop that was right outside the gates of Chanute Air Force Base up there. I mean, right outside in the sense of about 10 steps outside the base gate. And uh, at that time, the Air Force decided to crack down on uh, things and basically made it off limits. Uh, this is a thing that commanders can do. They can uh, say that a certain location is detrimental to the welfare of the service and uh, make it off limits for anybody to um, uh, go there or to be present there. And at the time, I just happened, my roommate 
happened to be the manager of this head shop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he basically lost his job. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a paraphernalia thing, basically, where they followed up the Rantoul cops did because somehow they felt that uh, uh, that hadn't gone far enough. There was another shop or two in town that had kind of taken up uh, the slack that were a little bit farther away from the base gate where, you know, they couldn't directly observe people going in and out from uh, the guard shack there at the base. So, uh, yeah, uh, they basically were trying to push things uh, further, inspired in part by, of course, the Reagan administration's very uh, pro-drug war uh, positions on cannabis. Yeah, And I think that's, that was basically what they were doing was sort of the local angle on uh, that whole Reagan uh, era uh, uh, opposition to people using cannabis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not to, to hop too many years ahead, but another thing I have from the archive that I feel like you might be able to recall is uh, this mm. drug testing phenomena. Yes, um, yes. Well, this was one reason that motivated my fellow workers to join me in going to Hash Wednesday was because we were sort of the objects of such policies. You know, they wanted to, to scare people on the job, uh, to use employers as agents in their drug war, to enlist them in uh, pursuing people. Um, the one thing to be understood about drug testing as it basically existed then and pretty much exists now as far as cannabis goes it does not indicate a current state of intoxication right. it indicates that you might have used a drug <laughs> or cannabis anyway in the past in fact it might have been a month ago and as far as an employer goes you really you know unless you know it's on the job and somebody's intoxicated what business of it is yours? I mean, this was the case really when it was in illegal everywhere for all reasons, but it's even more the case now when it is a legal substance. And yet here in Illinois, employees really don't have any protection under the law from what the employer decides to do about that. So it's an ongoing issue. It's not gone away. It's just sort of been subsumed because people assume that things are okay. And in fact, many employers now no longer bother testing for cannabis. They exclude cannabis as a reporting factor in their drug testing. But it's a little hard to get employers to say that, yeah, that's what we're doing. Uh, but many of them basically have sort of faced reality. They don't want to know, don't, you know, don't ask, don't tell, basically is the policy now for right. many of them. Right. And to your point, let me rotate this photo. I'll have to zoom in just a bit here. Um, but uh, let's see. Let's make sure I'm showing the right thing. Um, to your point, here's an old article of an employee. Oh, gosh, it, it blurred up a bit here. But um, an employee winning a drug case from back in the back in 82. Yes. Well, the thing is, is that the state of the law was a little bit uncertain and some people overstepped what they could actually get away with in terms of uh, oppression against their employees. So it was heartening to hear this. And I believe it was somebody who was employed in the software industry, uh, which has sort of been a leading edge in terms of 
people, you know, opposing uh, drug testing. It's not really relevant for the most part to writing software. Um, you know, you're not operating any dangerous machinery or anything like that. Although AI now, maybe <laughs> that goes the other way. But quite frankly, you know, it, it, it is a bit ridiculous. They basically did this because they could. And it was the only leverage they could get against individuals at the personal level in many cases. Uh, yeah. Because the fact of the matter was that people had easy access to cannabis and um, they took advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. And another, to your point, once again, uh, an article from 87 where uh, it the idea is rejected of worker drug testing because, uh, you know, such testing provides, no, as you said, no information about mental or physical impairments that may result from drug use, nor does it indicate patterns of use. That's right. So – it's been known this for is the quite American a while. Medical Association, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I was it is AMA, for... but but it doesn't really. I that's guess it I assumes you know, you know what AMA is. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's who they're referring to here, because they're talking about doctors and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, kind of interesting to see that history, and I I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it right now. I'm taking a look. I thought it was interesting, and then we can get back to the subject of Hash Wednesday to read about some things that had happened at the um, U of I. Uh, really quick, though, just because this is good history to share uh, for the podcast. You know, it's good to put this stuff out there. I plan to release this entire archive in the future, folks, so that you can kind of pick through it. Um, but just for the video, here's some more stuff about looks like maybe Champaign County uh, slow to adopt drug testing programs mm -hmm. well the thing is is this stuff costs money mm -hmm. and uh, early on it was rather expensive of course it got cheaper on a per test basis as it went on as things got to be sort of mass produced so to speak um, so you know adopting one of these programs came at a cost and, you know, the real question that some employers had was, well, is it worth the cost? <laughs> and, uh, of course, people were inherently uh, drawn in or attracted by the idea that they could do something about those terrible, terrible drugs. But many people already understood that hey, it wasn't that big a deal. You know, why should they worry about what their workers were doing off the job with something that was sort of an inherently safe substance relatively speaking compared to alcohol for instance <laughs> yeah yeah and the question i was working up to and then like i say we can jump back to hash wednesday uh there was a story and i'm looking for it right now i'll try to share it so that people can can you know maybe dig into it but i thought it was interesting that a university of illinois athlete was told they couldn't participate in some events because mm -hmm. some schools had clearly like identified that cannabis use, apparently they did define it as a performance enhancing drug, but for other schools that didn't have it in that definition, which is just funny, by the way, I don't mean to take yeah. too much time to laugh about that, but <laughs> um, the schools that didn't have it in that definition, he was still allowed to participate in. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting because, you know, this didn't only affect people who were employees, but it affected students. And uh, I mean, the university was just one one place where this happened at. It also included high school students in, in a number of cases, which, of course, was problematic at several levels. 
but you know, it discourages people from going to school. First of all, uh, depending upon what their personal situation is, but uh, you know, it, it was just a sign of how personally the term "rabid" I think <laughs> applies here. The drug war had become already uh, under the Reagan administration. I mean, it you know, it, it went from uh, the Carter administration trying to poison people to the Reagan administration trying to be as intrusive as possible with big government, uh, which is, of course, totally ironic because supposedly Reagan was for smaller government. <laughs> but right. this was sort of the exact opposite of that. Uh, but, you know, they were willing to betray their principles, I guess. They thought this was a higher purpose, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. No, straight up. Good pun, but also very good point. Um, Just displaying some more here before we uh, jump back to Hash Wednesday. Yeah, it's just fascinating to hear about that. It's also fascinating to see Radio Shack ads. Yeah. Oh, I miss Radio Shack. (laughs) Yeah. So um, lots of interesting stuff here. I won't, I'm trying to think of what I would just came to mind. I think I lost it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I lost it. Oh, but here's a interesting. You were mentioned Paraquat earlier. Uh, yes. There's a mention here of it's just a cut of a headline, but you can see DEA Paraquat uh, temporarily suspended. Yeah. Yeah. Agree, well, agreed to stop spraying the herbicide Paraquat. <laughs> well, increasingly environmental concerns were coming up. Uh, which is a little bit ironic because I think obviously human rights concerns would be taking precedent, but uh, fortunately yeah. there was pressure from other areas about paraquat spraying that it was, of course, a uh, environmental hazard uh, that that caused people who were concerned about the environment to get involved, and it's an example of how the drug war inspired resistance, not just from people who were cannabis users but from other people who saw it as a really a vast overreach of government power, yeah. of abusive government power. <laughs> yeah, like you say, it's funny that it had to be taken to that level. It's like, well, yeah, these are humans, but this also harms the environment pretty bad. So that's that's another reason, besides the fact yeah. that these are humans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. Because in, in their eyes, we, were, we weren't humans, or we yeah. weren't worthy humans. Well, I think it, it, here is where the drug war sort of started breaking down, too, is because it expanded the concern beyond people who were most immediately concerned, which was cannabis users, to people from a number of other walks of life who saw the program as problematic from their point of view. It had nothing to do with cannabis per se being used, but who saw this as, a, 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 as an abusive form of policy. Yeah, and then you had people like this that yeah. says, uh, "Let's flog dealers. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's take it up a notch." Yeah, this is in Delaware. This is just bizarre. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on, folks. Uh, you know, I mean, these are regimes overseas that we should be embarrassed about, but of course, we were supporting many of them, sending them money, uh, and of course, overseas, you know, you don't have quite the protection that the constitution gave and the the rights of free speech gave for people to speak out against such things. Yeah. This 1989 article, super interesting to see somebody, the former secretary of state 
suggesting that cocaine and other drugs should be legalized. Yeah, George Shultz, uh, interesting character there, the f- former uh, Secretary of State, uh, came out with this. But I, I think this is an example of how people who were sort of ordinary folks that had nothing to do directly with cannabis saw the harm being done by the drug war itself uh, about you know it undermining our institutions, our principles, our beliefs that they had gone too far uh, with the drug war in many aspects of life. Yeah. And just to get back to Hash Wednesday, what do you remember about uh, counter-protesters? Well, it's interesting because I believe it was 82, the first one we went to. And one of the other benefits of the job I had at the time was that we had access to a lot of cardboard, (laughs) big pieces of cardboard, about four by four. Because uh, what we used uh, on the job there were something called slip sheets. And slip sheets are used, it's a little hard to explain, but it's a special kind of forklift that has a thing that grabs one edge of this 4x4 piece of cardboard. And your product comes in stacked and wrapped on that cardboard and it picks it up. And then it can put it on a pallet. And this, what this is, is they don't have to ship the pallets. They save you know, all the hassle of, uh, involved with exchanging pallets and things like that. Well, slip sheets being four by four makes a good size sign. Let's put it this way. Uh, and uh, I remember having one, the one that I made and was using said legalize it, basically. And it had a gigantic cannabis leaf, you know. So four by four, imagine this, legalize it, big cannabis leaf. Well, there was a, a local preacher uh, well, he's a son of, he was a preacher himself, but he was a son of uh, a guy who organized sort of a, a right-wing church here. Uh, they've since sort of uh, mellowed out, changed their name and their approach to things. I don't know if they changed their theology or anything like that. But at the time, they were pretty infamous for being actively involved in sort of the Reagan era uh, evangelical support team, so to speak. So um, he was on campus, uh, not just for Hash Wednesday, but preaching on the quad. Uh, I don't know if people have been to the quad. If you haven't been there, it's sort of a free speech zone. And there's people that come in that just kind of rant and rave sometimes. <laughs> and uh, But he was here for Hash Wednesday that day. And he was a golden opportunity, thought, to be preaching. And he was just preaching the heck about it and stuff. And I kind of debated him a little bit in front of uh, he was up on the the, the union uh, patio, that raised area I was talking about uh, before, and he was just going on and on about it. And I had my say with him to his face and stuff, and then uh, kind of backed off and uh, took my sign and kind of worked my way behind him. And um, anyway, I hold up this sign, and I think the cameras were on too from TV or something, as I recall. But I, I get behind him and he's just ranting and raving about how evil cannabis is and all this stuff. And I hold up this sign right behind him and says, legalize it with the big old weed <laughs> leaf on it. And the crowd just sort of erupts in applause and stuff. And at first he thought, 
wow, I'm getting through these people. And then he looks around and sees me and sees what they're really applauding. That was such a golden moment. Let's put it this way. Uh, it, it, it kind of uh, undercut the whole the whole preachifying uh, thing for him. And I, I think he kind of backed off after that, as I recall, because he realized he really wasn't getting through to this crowd. So. Yeah. But it was just so classic because he really, I mean, you could tell he was thinking, wow, these people are finally getting it, you know, what I'm saying and stuff. And then he realized who they were really applauding for. So, but that, that was a, a classic uh, situation there. I, I, I have just a, such a distinct memory of that happening. And, uh, but it just shows how politicizing the, the, the whole thing with cannabis led to this politicizing of resistance to cannabis. And uh, I, I think that became a general trend. I mean, the party was still there, no doubt, but people increasingly saw it as a political issue, as something that could be done about. Uh, you know, I mean, it took a while. It took many years, uh, but well, something was done about it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes sense why that person didn't want to talk to me, Mike. Jeez. <laughs> I met that imagine. person. I met oh, him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, re I recognized his name. I won't get into the details of it, but uh -huh. uh, I approached him and uh, I said, hi, um, I have this letter to the editor that you wrote because I, and I'm looking at it right now. Um, he says, as many of you already... As many of you already know, Hash Wednesday on the University of Illinois has once again occurred, despite the efforts of many to see it ended. As chairman of Students and Citizens Against Marijuana, I would like to thank over 1,500 people who wrote to University Vice Chancellor Stan Levy, sent petitions to Champaign County State's Attorney Tom DeFanis, and who made phone calls to both as well as to university police, expressing their desire that authorities step in and enforce the <laughs> laws of the land. Yeah, there you go. So, again, students and citizens against marijuana. I asked him, did you write this letter the, to the editor? He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I I wrote this. <laughs> and he did make it clear that he'd prefer not to be quoted in this. So I'm not quoting <laughs> him. I'm, I'm not quoting him. I'm just kind of loosely recalling our conversation, right? Yeah. And uh, he... He's a history teacher now. He knows that's not how history works. Uh, <laughs> if he didn't want me to know these things, he shouldn't have talked to me. So yeah. uh, he confirmed to me that he did write this letter. And But what he said to me was a little confusing. He said, uh, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight anymore, so I don't really want to participate. Um, but he's like, my protest was not about marijuana. It was about the fact that universities the university wasn't enforcing the rules equally. And I said, but your letter says <laughs> the issue of marijuana is not only a moral and ethical one. Do you still believe that? And he said, look, my ideas may have changed since I wrote that letter. And I said, perfect. Let's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this. And he said, I'd rather not. I, he said, here's the thing. I don't care about this anymore. And I said, what do you mean? And he just said, I, I just don't care about this anymore. Um, but I'll be honest with you, buds, the way he was saying, I don't care about this anymore, made me feel like he still kind of cares about it. But um, he cares that he lost. That's what it does. Right. So 
just uh, found it interesting, uh, you know, that uh, not only that he didn't want to participate, but that he seems to like, I don't know, he seemed to not remember exactly what he was fighting for, because what I'm reading him saying his statement is that he thought it was not only a moral and ethical issue, but a matter of health. Uh, but when I spoke to him, he said, it's not so much about the marijuana itself. It's the fact that the university had rules and they weren't enforcing them. And I think the rules should be enforced. I'm just like, <laughs> okay. Rules can be changed. Let's put it that way. That's right. What if an aspect of I, things that I, I think he just did not consider that possibility. <laughs> right. Uh, to loosely quote dirty Harry, it's, what if the law is wrong? There you go. You know, there you go. So, and when you have thousands of people saying the law is wrong, then their views need to be considered. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you for telling us about counter protesters. That's the first time we were able to, you know, really talk about that. Um, Cause it sounds like maybe they were, so did you think, did you say he, maybe he kind of gave up after that? Did you not see much of them, the, the counter protesters after that whole well, incident? I, I think, they faded away. Let's put it this way. Uh, uh, in part because of the, well, in a few years, the university did kind of crack down. So I, I guess he got his wish temporarily, uh, certainly to a certain degree. Uh, but I think uh, people realized that it was going to happen regardless at, at all levels, even people who weren't supporters of the idea. <laughs> so that they need, just needed to accept that fact that there were these people out there, which is an advance because at first, they kind of like pretended like, well, these people are very marginal. There's very few of them. Uh, we can oppress them, suppress them, whatever, without consequences to society. And that turned out not to be the case. Yeah. What do you re- you just referenced the crackdowns of uh, let's call them the crackdowns of 1988. What do you remember about yeah. this? Well, uh, by that time, I was working days. And uh, so I, I, I don't recall being there, certainly for this one. I do recall reading in the paper. And I go, oh, no, this is bad. Uh, but it was also a very marginal activity in terms of the police actually doing anything about the average student out there participating. Uh, I mean, they certainly kind of swept in and, uh, you know, tried to try to disperse things and stuff like that. But. Well, it did, just didn't work. Let's put it this way. I mean, it made martyrs out of people. Uh, if you want to, if you want to consider that, and anytime you're making martyrs for the other side, you're really not advancing your own interests. Let's put it this way: in a in a free and democratic society, uh, because you create resistance, more resistance, more open resistance that is attuned to um, being tough and, and holding your ground and being stubborn and, and i think the organizing that followed uh this is a good example of how this stuff backfires uh yeah there you <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> so that 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 makes some people happy who right. are calling for that sort of thing to happen but uh it also breeds resistance let's put it this way oppression always breeds resistance yeah it's just crazy to look at this image like i wonder what this guy's thinking right now like yeah we got him yeah yeah uh let's put it this way uh this was very token because 
they could do no more than arrest a few people while hundreds, if not thousands of people right there were doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was very much, uh, the sort of thing where people who were there, who witnessed this thought, well, this is pretty ineffectual. I mean, maybe they're trying to scare us, but, uh, I'll just be a little bit more careful. And, uh, yeah, well, that's what people did. And the party and the hash Wednesday organizing went on. <laughs> And it went on. That's right. You can see here this woman was hurt in the pushing that occurred. You can see the police going through the crowd here. And I'll bet you, yeah, they weren't just, oh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. I'm sure they were shoving people. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, that was the way it operated in those days. And certainly against people who were considered outlaws. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, now we kind of step into the days of Joshua Salone, who I actually uh, had on the podcast, folks. If you'd like to listen to it, definitely check out my episode with Joshua Salone. He'll be pictured in some of the things we uh, talk about, and I'll tell you the episode number here in just a moment. Um, it is episode number 12 with Joshua Salone. It's our Hash Wednesday episode, and uh, yeah. It's good stuff. So speaking of Mr. Joshua Sloan, I'll show a picture of Joshua. And actually, it was funny when I showed this picture on the podcast with him. He said it brought back a lot of memories because he remembers this shirt that he had. Uh, uh, yeah, this yeah. Uh, Ron sells crack. Right. Um, I think that's what it says. Ron sells crack. Somebody Something sells crack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and he he actually told us a very interesting story based that he recalled by seeing this shirt uh folks yeah i'm not going to get into it check it out um it's funny how seeing things like this you know a shirt you used to wear will bring back memories um yeah. what do, what do you remember about these years what do you remember about the days of uh organizer joshua salone um and uh people that well, were with him? as i mentioned i I was no longer generally, I mean, I had to take the time off work to go to Hash Wednesday, which I, which I did sometimes. I, I don't recall exactly, but increasingly, uh, you know, I had work to do and stuff. But the thing about Joshua is he started organizing things. So you not only had Hash Wednesday, but you had some program in the evening. And that I was up for because I had long been, <laughs> not just the Hash Wednesday, but uh, with a whole slew of other things, focusing largely on Central America solidarity work at the time because of the wars that, once again, Reagan sponsored in Central America and expanded. Uh, this was something that I was very much involved in uh, as an outside agitator, so to speak. <laughs> That's sort of that old uh, con condemnatory term. Uh, but it was something that I did because I believed in it. Um, and, and this sort of rubbed off. I mean, he, he recalled a, a demonstration that occurred during uh, Bush's uh, campaign for president in 1988. And uh, by that time, I'd kind of gotten to know Josh uh, pretty well. Um, and basically, uh, in addition, of course, to all this protesting and stuff, I was also, um, well, I'd been growing for a long time, and I decided that that was one contribution I could make 
was other than cardboard like we see here i'm pretty sure i got this piece of car this is a bit of packing uh that's sort of corrugated and thick not a slip sheet but i'm pretty sure i got that piece of cardboard for him and, and they did wonderful nice. things with it art artistically yeah <laughs> so, because <laughs> i was just thinking well it's a good stiff thing in case it rains you know and it holds uh -huh. up better but uh him and his uh, friends managed to turn it into this wonderful cannabis leaf but 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 going back to the situation of how politics came into this i mean he showed up for this uh, bush it was some sort of fundraising event at the hotel that was there yeah. at uh, uh that corner and uh you know, there was secret service around because Bush was vice president and stuff, but he had made up these little packets, as he recalled, that looked like bags of Coke, yeah. basically, and he was throwing them out there. But a bunch of my friends, my associates and I were also there, and I was kind of going back and forth between the two things <laughs> because, I mean, on the one hand, my, 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 my companions we're all out there protesting because of Bush's involvement in the Central America uh, debacle, you know, and Iran Contra was still fresh in people's minds. And this was before people had discovered that, that basically some of the people that uh, the CIA was assisting were also people that were involved in bringing crack to the streets of LA uh, to, to, to just sum it up in case people have not heard that story. Uh, because the Contras, uh, in addition to taking money from Uncle Sam, also helped finance their operations by smuggling coke. So, uh, you know, not all of them were, but some of them were, apparently. And in any case, uh, this was something that, where, where the two areas of protest overlap, let's put it this way, yeah. uh, because we were certainly... Uh, most people at that time, I mean, weren't really so much cannabis specific, but they were certainly seeing the drug war as an extension of this general trend of, you know, making war on everything that the Reagan administration uh, was known for. And uh, so, so that was very entertaining because there was a good overlap between uh, the two, uh, the two uh, interests uh, in protesting. And uh, I think it worked well. And I think, uh, I mean, certainly it was something that I was supportive of with Josh's work because Josh made a point of expanding Hash Wednesday beyond just the event itself and using it as a political tool to advance a cause. And, and I really can't say enough good things about him as a person for doing that because that was something I, I kind of knew from – uh, the folks I associated with about Central America solidarity work on campus, because most of them were, well, there was faculty and there were students, and people had various connections uh, to Central America, whether it was a, a place that they had gone to teach or they were from there uh, as faculty. And to a lesser degree at that time, there, there were Central America students here, but there were certainly a lot of students who did research in Central America who had uh, great concerns. And then, of course, there were just people that were concerned about uh, the war that was being conducted there that, that you know, opposed it because it was a war that the U.S. was sponsoring. Peace, 
peace protesters, I guess you could say. So there was a lot of interest there uh, that was involved in that. And that was the milieu that I came out of. In fact, just, just to backtrack a bit here, there was a decision at one time in around 1980, and the uh, Illini Union basically had started a policy, from what I understand, of that only students could book things at the union. Because after all, it is a student union, but they yeah. use this as a way to exclude, quote unquote, outside interest from using the facility. Mm -hmm. But then there was a ruling that said, hey, you know, uh, it, it's a public space. And being a public space is, well, if you're a citizen of Illinois, you should have some access to it. So basically, there was some sort of ruling. I don't recall the exact circumstances, but my and this was sort of almost before I'd really got involved with the Central America stuff is I'd been a supporter just <laughs> to go further back of the weather underground, basically, and their opposition to the war in Vietnam. That's that's where it goes back to. But the thing is, is I kind of came along at the tail end of that where the FBI is crushing them down and, and and just not too fine a point on it. These folks did set off some bombs. But they were very careful never to kill anyone, with the exception of the, a few of themselves when a bomb unfortunately went off that some people were building. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, it's what people call terrorism today. But on the other hand, it was also very much founded in a, in a, in a culture of protest. You know, they weren't trying to terrorize anybody. They were trying to change policy. Now, of course, the government now defines terrorism as any action designed to coerce the government about policy. Well, elections do that all the time, and, well, we don't go after those folks. Well, right. <laughs> some people do nowadays, the way the Republicans <laughs> are trending. But, but let's put it this way. In general, we don't see it that way. And uh, perhaps, you know, I mean, perhaps these people overdid things. I'm not sure I would be in quite the same space space now as i was then but i was a supporter but one of the things that they basically said was hey you can't count on our network or whatever you have to go out and do your own thing to build little nodes of resistance i forget what the exact terms were involved but that's what i was trying to do and uh one of the things that i did was when this policy changed at the Illini union I decided, well, why don't we bring somebody down from Chicago? These folks have been reading their, their, their stuff, you know, and everything. And I brought down some representatives of the New African Freedom Front, I believe was the name. It was New African something. But their thing was that uh, they wanted to establish a black-led nation in the Old South, arguing basically that, hey, we were enslaved there. We were what built this thing up. We should have like seven or eight states where we rule. And, and you know, the idea is a little bit problematic in the sense that, well, should anybody, you know, dominate, you know, uh, no matter what color they are. But, but in any case, it was an argument they were making to help advance a cause of, you know, trying to look at racial inequities a little bit more closely. So I brought them down, and uh, that was one of the first things at the union. There were a lot of there were several people there that looked like police types that were just checking it out. But in any case, that's where I started getting involved. But pretty soon, the whole Central America thing came along because that all intensified once Reagan got elected. 
And uh, but these people in Chicago, I kind of stayed in touch with them for a while. And uh, really, it kind of lasted till about 1983 when uh, I went to Washington as one of the organizers of several busloads of people here that went to a big national rally there in, I believe it was November 83. And uh, these people from Chicago were basically what it is, we're sitting out in the crowd there around the Capitol and people are going through the uh, crowd distributing leaflets, which was a manifesto about what had happened the evening before, which was somebody blew up (laughs) a bathroom in the Capitol. And uh, which as it turned out, if you believe what the government says and convicted these people of, there were several of the people that I was working with in Chicago <laughs> that I was doing media work with, and which basically involved writing some stories, doing some recordings for WEFT, a local uh, community radio station. Uh, but several of these people were accused of participating in this bombing and eventually convicted. And uh, but But these are the kind of people I was hanging out with. And in a sense, to me, the whole Central America work, and then when it came along, Hash Wednesday were all extensions of that. Now, the Hash Wednesday thing wasn't a typical thing. In fact, some of these people were very anti-drug themselves, oddly enough, uh, because they saw it as weakening, you know, the focus on political revolution or something to that effect. And in fact, they they tried to recruit me, and it was like, well, I kind of knew that that side of things. So it was like. <laughs> uh, my folks are a little bit different, okay, and what I believe in is a little bit different. So, uh, and, and that was one thing also with people here locally. People saw cannabis as an issue as being problematic because it was that sort of thing that COINTELPRO, which that term I don't think has come up yet, but Josh was talking about it to a certain extent, and maybe some other people I think had touched on how drugs were used by the police to help suppress political protest of various kinds. So uh, a lot of people were very leery of that, including one very good friend who's uh, uh, on the faculty here. And uh, at that time, you know, they kind of looked down at that whole idea of what I was doing there on the side and being, yeah, we're not interested in that. You know, that's just a problem and stuff. Interestingly, and I made a comment on uh, the Danielle Schumacher episode of this, which I believe was the first one. Yeah. But in any case, uh, on this Hash Wednesday history, because she eventually had classes with this professor who was an authority on human rights. And between what Josh had done and what she and Shalene were doing, Debbie Goldsberry, all those people that had kind of come along that I had been working with, kind of influencing, you know, supporting the politicization of Hash Wednesday. Um, apparently, he had come around to the idea that the whole war on cannabis was a human rights issue. So to me, this was a very significant thing. And in fact, I later... the. I, I like I said, I'd, I'd worked for a number of years, and well, there was a union busting deal went on, and I ended up going to school at the U of I, so I was no longer an outside agitator. But anyway, I took this class on human rights because I, I just wanted to see how he was teaching and stuff. I mean, it's not that I needed the class because I had gone through a lot of the experiences that he 
had informing his opinions on a lot of this stuff. In fact, the second time I went to Nicaragua, <laughs> we were going to meet up. Uh, my significant other at the time was a Guatemalan woman who had her own connections to revolution there. And I won't discuss that any further, but uh, this professor was down there with his significant other. And we were going to meet in a certain town in Nicaragua at a certain time because we knew our, our tours overlapped. And uh, like we're in this hotel that we're supposed to meet at and there's a power outage <laughs> but i could hear his voice so you know that's where i found him you know here miles from home anyway wow. so we, we had a good relationship you know and it was something that it took him a while to come around to and it was very satisfying to take that class and have him say some positive things about the resistance to the drug war uh you know finally because that convinced me that he had really kind of changed his thinking on that and accepted that you know it wasn't just a threat to the movement that you know people were getting involved in this you know uh, that that could be used against us and but it was also because i think society had changed too that society had begun accepting that resistance to the drug war was legitimate and uh, i i think that you know, the, those twin things, I think, probably brought him around, not having directly discussed this because of, well, several reasons. I, I mean, I just didn't want to push the, you know, hey, we changed your mind sort of thing too much. But I think we did. And, and, and I think it was due to the politicization of uh, the efforts made by Josh and the folks that followed on after him that made a difference uh, in the world. And that just shows you how history is made by people. People oftentimes think of history as sort of a dead subject, you know. But we were clearly making history there. And and I think the archive that you're pulling stuff out of is sort of a record of that. I mean, yeah. in a certain sense, you had to have been there, but in a certain sense, remembering it has a power that uh, I, I think is not to be underestimated. Well said. Yeah, here, here's uh, Joshua Salone here. I believe he said this is Debbie Goldsberry, who I've gotten in contact with. We'll be having her on the show. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, to talk about what, you know, what she recalls and everything. I wanted to share that. I also mm -hmm. wanted to share, you mentioned um, Shalene and Danielle. Um, I actually just recently sat down with Danielle, so she'll be sharing, or sorry, I meant to say Shalene. Uh, I've uh -huh. already sat down with Danielle. Um, but yeah. for folks, here's a picture of Shalene and Danielle uh, at a Hash Wednesday of the past. Um, so, yeah, we're really trying to to gather all these perspectives. And like you say, um, even if you weren't there, the fact that I think we're we're bringing this back is it makes it more powerful. Um, yeah. You know, I look back at it and this is I'm going to be loosely quoting Josh from a, a conversation that we had it, I don't believe I invoked this. I may have invoked this on the podcast. He had said to me in the past, I want to believe that the activists of the late 80s and early 90s kept the flame alive long enough for a new generation to kind of dilute the old guards mentality. I believe that's what you what you all did. And that's why I'm so thankful for everything you all, all of you did, because yeah, I think that if you wouldn't have stepped up and risked your freedom by making these statements, because frankly, that's what you were doing. You were risking your freedom. Yeah. 
Um, it's possible that that line of reasoning could have died and the old guards mentality could have taken over, you know, completely. Well, it's certainly the case that, I mean, we see it today. Uh, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, abortion as an issue, we've got these folks that have worked very diligently at something that the public itself does not support. And they managed to somehow get themselves in a position that they've, quote unquote, changed the law, so to speak. And but when it, you know, in in, in denying women the right to an abortion, and as we found out, even in relatively conservative states, people just as a whole, they may be sort of conservative on a lot of issues, but on certain civil rights issues, and it's turned out in Ohio, at least, this was paired up with similar support for legalization of cannabis, for recreational cannabis. In fact, a much, <laughs> a considerably better uh, law in several respects than we have here in Illinois, without going into all that detail. But this is one of the things where people are still trying to shove the past down our throat to take us back to the past because there's some glorious idea of the past that omits things like coverage of hash wednesday i'm sure and things like that because it's very selective about well who who owns the past well we own it because we're conservatives and it's like well uh, um people weren't always that conservative <laughs> to tell you the truth i mean in a sense they had the upper hand when it came to direct political power but when it comes to the power from below that depends on people getting out and exercising it and unfortunately a lot of people think well what i might do doesn't matter and well it's hard to say exactly how much it matters but it does matter and when you get the opportunity to go out and protest against something that you regard as an injustice, take it because you will be a part of history one way or the other. I mean, you'll either succeed or you'll fail, but in a, in a, in a very real sense, it's important to, to do that because we should never let people say, well, this is just the way things are because that's the way it was in the past because they had a lot of bad notions in the past, let's put it this way. I mean, there's all kinds of bad stuff from the past that we're still living down. And it's not just slavery, because you could talk about slavery, yeah, per se, that is gone. But the effects of slavery, oh, still with us, still with us, including in the drug war itself. I mean, you know, uh, that's why there's all this talk about social equity i'm not so sure about effective policy in illinois but there is a lot of talk about it and people do understand uh, those injustices and that there needs to be something done to make things up as best we can we can't fix the past but we can fix the present for a better future that's the one thing about resistance and protest is the the future is ours not the past <laughs> well said that's inspiring and if i could put a fine point on some of the things you said to kind of wrap up or not wrap mm -hmm. up our conversation but to wrap like that into a tight tight bow uh, mm -hmm. using some things that josh said and using some things you just said i like that you brought up the issue of abortion because 
the way I like to say it, and it, I didn't make this up. I'm actually reading it off the Guardian right now. I don't know that they made it up either because I've heard other people say this, but I think it's a really eloquent, short way of saying what you just said. No one can prevent all abortions. You can only eliminate safe abortions. Um, and I would say that extends to illicit substances. You're not going to prevent usage of substances. You can only eliminate safe usage of substances. In other words, you're not helping the problem by making these drugs illegal. You're not helping the problem by demonizing users. You don't make the substances less dangerous. You're driving people to invent designer drugs to get around loopholes. You're inflating yeah. the price. Um, and, and in the case of abortion, you're forcing women to go into, you know, to use a grotesque, grotesque example, a back alley uh, instead of consulting with a healthcare professional to get a, a, you know, a procedure that they should have the right to get. So thank you for bringing that up. And do you agree with everything I just said? Like, I feel like prohibition, yeah, you can't, you can't <clears throat> regulate behavior like that. I would only add that the intent of the right when they do these things is to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that somehow or another drugs are bad for you. And here's how we're going to prove it. We're going to make any sort of safe use difficult or impossible same thing with abortion that's what they hope to do you know you're a bad person you know you should suffer for your evil or whatever i mean i i th that is what lurks in the back of their minds and it's like hey you know if you really believe in god and whatever why don't you leave that up to god who are you to decide what god thinks about right certainly people at an individual level uh so you know it, it's it's the kind of implicit hypocrisy in the positions of many conservatives, not all, because there's there's folks I respect on the right, but uh, they're kind of few and far between because of how crazy it's all gotten there. Yeah, seriously, though, seriously. And, um, you know, just back to uh, Hash Wednesday. Well, first of all, let's mm -hmm. we got to share this one. This is a golden okay. one from our archive. It doesn't necessarily have to do with Hash Wednesday, but cannabis is growing and has been growing in Illinois for a long time, yeah. folks. Just here yeah. it is, you know. Um, and and they acknowledge you were in this talking article. about rent. You were talking about Rantoul the other day too. Uh, yes, Josh, I believe. Yeah, and uh, I can tell you that. Uh, you can have like a Subaru or two full of that stuff and you still won't really get high because <laughs> I've done that. In fact, I tried to cook it into oil. And even the oil wasn't that good, quite frankly. Huh. <laughs> so, I was going to ask, how'd you know that? But you gave me the answer. You tried. That's right. <laughs> you tried. That's funny. Well, um, you know, just, just, uh, with regard to Hash Wednesday, um, you know, and I'm not trying to skip over any um, years, you know, some things that happened that I thought were interesting. I don't know if you recall and or maybe, like you said, your schedule had changed to this point. Um, but uh, Josh mentioned, you know, that one of the ladies that was an original participant of the federal yes. cannabis program was there. Yes, um, LV Muzika. Yeah. And she she noted that my weed was much better than the government weed at the after party. That's oh, probably a really good compliment to get, huh? Yeah. I mean, well, I I, I I had heard that the government weed wasn't very good, but to hear it from a 
somebody who actually had access to it and had mine to compare it with. It was, it was sort of an upper, but you know, it was one of the cool things and why I liked working with Josh too, was to party with these people. I mean, I partied with all the normal national leadership when they showed up. I partied with Dennis Perone when he showed up. Uh, I mean, the folks that were involved on campus were poor college students. Okay. These, these aren't folks who are frat boys, you know, with a credit card from home and, you know, a car too and all that stuff. So somebody, it helped to have somebody bring the party goods. And since I was growing, that was not a problem for me. And, uh, I had fairly, fairly good weed <laughs> yeah at least way. better than this stuff right oh much better much better uh i was growing big bud at that time uh, by the late 80s so for and... folks that are watching or even listening i can describe <laughs> what we're seeing right now this is uh cannabis from the university of mississippi which was due to federal prohibition and regulations all of the cannabis used for u.s research is provided by one facility at the university of mississippi through the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Researchers have complained for years that the quality of the marijuana is terrible, typically far below what you get from state, legal, medical, or recreational markets. They're even on the black market. The they, photo... they, could, they could really stand to read Ed Rosenthal's books. <laughs> they really could, yeah. <laughs> they really could, or just watch a few YouTube videos. Jeez, it's not that hard. Um, it was one of the, the more fulfilling events I went to, too, that uh, was from the era with uh, with Danielle and Shalene, was that they brought Ed Rosenthal to campus. And he was on a book tour at the time and uh, signed, signed a copy of his book for me, <laughs> and I had a little interaction with him. And he's a great guy. I mean, he's very genuine and real. People have always curious about well, he had a column for a long time in High Times, and he's gone on to other things now and stuff. But, uh, you know, I can highly recommend his guidance if if you're growing, whether it's small or large. Uh, I learned a lot from him over the years. And, in fact, <laughs> I got some seed right now I'm growing. It's called Ed Rosenthal Super OG. And that stuff is looking really good. Let's put it this way. So That's awesome. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just showing Danielle and Shalene right now because that's cool yeah. to hear that they were bringing in big time people like that. I think they even mentioned like people like Keith Stroop, Stroop yes. however you say his last name, yes. um, would come through town. Well, this was something that started under Josh. And uh, he, he not only brought people here, but helped leverage their presence here in the Midwest by hooking them up with folks through the whole sort of network of uh, people uh, in Wisconsin and uh, elsewhere in Illinois and I think Michigan too. Uh, there's not really much going on in Indiana speaking of the native Hoosier, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, bringing these people into the Midwest also helps sort of raise the profile because uh, people always sort of assume that it's those crazy people on the coast, you know, that do this sort of thing. And uh no, uh, we're here too throughout the Midwest, and and bringing those sort of people out helped uh, raise the profile of uh, the cannabis movement. Yeah, yeah, well said. And you know, um, there's so so many other memories I can touch on, but I want to ask, you know, coming into today, um, were there any 
memories or significant moments or incidents that stand out from your experiences that that you really wanted to maybe share that you've seen some of the episodes mm. maybe that hasn't mm. been shared yet yeah well i one of the things uh, i think we covered a lot of them but one of the ones that at least for me was kind of transformational was when dennis perone came because he had kind of helped medicalize cannabis in california in fact it was an ongoing project at the time that he showed up here and just discussing that really kind of changed my thinking to a certain degree about cannabis you know because you know it is medicine and uh one of the things was is along the late 80s (laughs) i got hurt on the job and uh i eventually discovered that cannabis worked quite well at treating my condition let's put it this way without going into the whole medical history of everything and this was something that was just starting to form in my mind at the time and that but speaking to dennis perone really firmed up that whole thing that yeah this is something that's important to emphasize in our movement is the medical aspects of this and of course folks that opposed cannabis sort of just said oh this is just a you know, performative sort of people waving their hands around the air, trying to impress people. There's nothing to it. But as many, many people know, I mean, there is a significant function for cannabis as as medicine. And in fact, that's how we ended up having recreational cannabis in Illinois is because, well, we had medical cannabis first. And unfortunately, that project kind of got hijacked by big weed into uh hey this is this is our little bailiwick here and we don't want to let anybody else in on it uh so we're still trying to get over that here in illinois somewhat unsuccessfully so far but you know we can always hope for the future um and this is another reason why it's important for people to stay interested and involved in cannabis policy because what we have now is not what we have to put up with we can change this we managed to make it legal we can make it legal right in the end but it's something that people have to have to do something about you can't just assume that somebody's out there working to fix things you know if you're not out there working to fix things and you care about it then well something's not getting done you know it could get done that might advance things so people should keep that in mind is is that's important so the medical aspect of things was something that was transformational for me amongst the people that were coming and speaking here. Um, But another aspect of it was the networking too, because um, I went to several different things where I helped work security uh, along with Josh some of the time, some of the times not, but uh, that was very satisfying too, because it let me help, you know, the politicization of things because these, festivals as they were i mean they were sort of like a sort of like a weekend long uh uh hash wednesday you know but conducted uh, under other pretenses or whatever uh, but uh i they always had a political aspect to them i mean they were sort of like hash wednesday in the sense of well people are going to be out there doing it obviously but uh it was also something that kind of forced people to to resist because I mean, what you had was state police and all kinds of other police and they would like 
sort of surround the roads leading into one of these festivals. Yeah, there we go. Now, this one's in Ohio. And uh, uh, I think Josh was a little bit confused about we we met when, when I was up at um, one of the weed stocks, I believe it was in Wisconsin. We ran into the 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 woman of the couple who was organizing this thing here. But this was in Ohio. And uh, I think they saved the farm eventually. In fact, it may have. I know Wavy Gravy, I think, has a a farm somewhere around Athens. And this may be what this property ended up as. I'm not sure. I, I started looking into it one time and wasn't able to resolve that. But it was a, it was an interesting property. I went there and worked security. And then I worked. <laughs> I got appointed director of security. <laughs> for one of the ones that I was there for it anyway. But uh, yeah, it was a couple that got busted by customs. Once again, going back to paraphernalia, interestingly enough. And this was after, you know, as part of Reagan's drug war and stuff, they passed a, a paraphernalia ban from being imported. So all of a sudden, various pipes and other things that, you know, could be quote unquote defined as paraphernalia became illegal. They didn't have any drugs on them. There was no drugs in them. Nice, clean stuff. They got a bunch of stuff that they had bought in Afghanistan and were importing it. And basically, they got busted. And this new law, this was along about the time that, was it Tommy Chong got busted or something? for? They got busted for selling pipes uh, domestically. And... Uh, this was about the same time anyway. These folks got busted. Uh, so what they were doing was raising money for their defense and to save the farm because they were trying to say that the farm, because the pipes were being shipped there, was a nexus of distribution and they were going to seize it, you know, and stuff. But it was a really nice property and I had a good time there and stuff. In fact, that was one where um, uh, Chef Raw, <laughs> we went along over there and uh, he was... Uh, uh, Basically, uh, he'd cook out, and he'd cook the stuff that he would cook for the Grateful Dead uh, uh, tour following that, that he did. And, of course, this was along about the time right after Jerry had passed away. And it, to a certain extent, people were trying to reinvent, you know, what that whole scene was going to do. So some of these efforts were designed to tap into that whole um, sort of sociological movement around the dead. Uh, but, uh, yeah, very interesting stuff. And, uh, but they had this really strong political component about ending the, the war on cannabis. And, uh, it, it was good. It was good to help with that. Yeah, it was very satisfying work. Another thing is, is I'm kind of into radios and, uh, I was able to bring along basically radios to help work security and stuff like that uh listening uh, to the local pd make well, sure they're not calling it, in or... there was that too i mean that was a, an aspect of like for instance the demonstration that uh, we were talking about earlier uh on the bush campaign where josh was throwing those baggies i mean i was basically 
monitoring the whole thing from where the plane touched down at Willard <laughs> to them coming up to the hotel. So basically I could cue people. Oh, well, here they come. <laughs> wow. And, and to monitor. <laughs> well, you got to remember this was back in the day before everything went digital and got encrypted. Uh-huh. And if you knew the right channels, you could oftentimes learn a heck of a lot. Let's put it this way. Uh, cell phones were just then coming into use in the, the, Two people that tended to have cell phones a lot were narcs and drug dealers. Right. <laughs> so, and, and at the time, you could still listen to phone calls in the clear. And uh, yeah, uh, that that was something that was helpful around anything that had to do with the police and stuff up until. Uh, I was in the late 90s, mid to late 90s when digital and encryption and stuff all started coming down. But like the local Task Force 10, the folks going after all the big drug dealers and stuff. Well, uh, let's put it this way. I, I basically listened to pretty much everything that they did because uh, I had the one, it was in uh, Illinois State Police, there was a certain channel, 154.95, that was sort of like the main <laughs> the main thing for doing surveillance on. And uh, you learned a lot about what was going on locally, let's put it this way. And you learned a lot. And this was one of the things, too, that once again reemphasized how the war on drugs was just another war amongst many that the establishment was fighting because when I first started listening to, to this, the thing that struck me was how much it, the whole process of surveillance and tailing people was something that the CIA had worked out years ago and used extensively. And that's what they trained people on. And where I found this out was, uh, Oh, what was his name? It was one of the people that, was a CIA agent in Latin America, but then left the agency and wrote a book about it. And uh, in any case, he described the whole process of how they tracked down these communist organizers by tailing them, you know, by cars and stuff and how they would drive parallel roads and use radio to coordinate when people went one way or the other. What you'd have, you'd have somebody on the tail that you would switch on and off to keep them from observing the fact that somebody was following them all the time, but then you would have cars on the parallel roads to wherever they were. That way, if they turn right or left, you could pick them up <laughs> and not lose them. So this whole thing was just exactly how they operated here. They were using the same tactics that they used overseas against the people they opposed politically. I mean, because not these folks weren't always communists. So oftentimes they were just labor organizers or <clears throat> students or faculty and stuff. And uh, I mean, it, it's one of those things that the political repression abroad recirculates back home. And uh, people should not underestimate how much the government does basically the same thing here as it does overseas to other people where they're not so restricted by the constitution here theoretically the constitution restricts them but that isn't always the case i can tell you <laughs> based on that of course now they're all encrypted and you can't follow anything but hey that's why they're the secret police is they need to have their secrets because right. otherwise people might oppose what they're doing and do something about it because theoretically the police are 
under civilian leadership. But all too often, as we've seen in the case of legalization of cannabis in Illinois, what the state police wants done is taken into a great deal of consideration, whereas what the people want done, what the Constitution would seem to dictate, is often given very short hearings. Let's put it that way. That's why you have things like the the five plant limit and it's for med only when it comes to growing in Illinois and the state police oppose that not just big weed big weed of course joined in with the state police going yeah that's a good idea we don't want people growing dope willy-nilly I mean we won't have customers well that's not really the case I mean there'll always be far more people that want to go to the, the dispensary than bother with growing their own but you know it's interesting how these interests overlap and people should really really question that sort of thing there really is no good excuse for why we all every one of us doesn't have the right to grow you don't necessarily need to grow but just having that right to grow would have a huge impact oh yeah on the whole perception of pricing and stuff like that here in illinois uh those high prices would soften suddenly <laughs> i can guarantee you <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like folks, again, I want to reiterate something you said. Even if you don't want to grow, if you never intend to grow, please fight for home grow because it will benefit you inadvertently. That's right. That's right. Because it is the complete legalization. Earlier you said, you know, let's legalize it the right way. I say that the way we've done it is legalization. My definition and your definition of legalization is much different from what, what we've said. Do you... I would quote you now. I I reference this quote all the time. Buds, do you want to say what I reference all the time? Because sometimes I butcher it, I feel like. Do you know what I'm talking about? Cannabis is not legal until... Let let me go to my profile so that I get the exact words right. (laughs) No problem. No problem. Yeah, go ahead and pull that up. I've also got something pulled up that I would like to... I think this is going to be a good way, now that we've segued into this subject... I've been trying to close each Hash Wednesday with a discussion exactly around this topic because, frankly, I feel like not everything that people were talking about at Hash Wednesday has been fully realized. And that's kind of what we're discussing right now. You know, like, yes, we've made progress, but we've not made complete progress. That's right. Well, my profile, I think, sums it up pretty well. It says an old weed activist, retired commercial grower, and long-time med patient, cannabis isn't really free until you can grow all you want and need. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And, you know, I, I, having grown cannabis to make money, (laughs) I, I was also, you know, I'm not going to insist that I should have some sort of exclusive right to that. That's just so friggin' bogus. There is no good reason other than the commercial interest of those who support such a thing. There is no good public policy reason for that. In fact, it's positively negative public policy to have that in place. You have a much better relationship to this plant, first of all, as a cannabis user, if you grow your own. Uh, you know, it's something that you grow, it's something that doesn't it demonetizes cannabis for you because if you grow and you can grow all you need, 
money goes out of the equation pretty much. I mean, you got what fertilizer and stuff like that, and maybe some electric power or whatever. But 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 the whole thing, as far as what that huge value is, of course, the state has an interest in it having value because that's how you get taxes from it. Well, you're going to be able to tax it. I mean, most people are not going to grow their own. Most people would just prefer the convenience of going to the dispensary, but they shouldn't have to pay out the nose for it. Right. And that's what, what putting growing in there does is it sort of opens the question of, well, how much is this really worth money wise versus what is its real worth as a substance in and of itself? And uh, they've somehow hyped the value up in order to make business successful or whatever. Well, we have a way of making business successful in this country. It's called competition. Yeah. Okay. And I speak as a leftist. Okay. <laughs> as somebody who's not a real friend of the market, but on the other hand, why the hell are we doing what we're doing with cannabis in this state by somehow, you know, make, let's think about it this way. We have something called public utilities. Public utilities are closely regulated, which is what they argue they're doing with the cannabis industry, but they are closely regulated in the public interest, not in the interest of the public utility and its shareholders, but in the public interest. And we have exactly the opposite in the case of the cannabis industry in Illinois. It is managed in the interest of the industry. And that is ridiculous. I'm sorry, there is no excuse, including the social equity excuse, because this undermines social equity. Social equity would value not capital and capital investments, because you don't have that as a social equity licensee. What you have is sweat equity. Why don't we have a system that values sweat equity? You get a license, you go out there, you plant it, you harvest it, you sell it. You're allowed to do that. As an entrepreneur, as a small businessman or woman. And that's what we really need if you really want social equity. You don't make a few people rich just because of the color of their skin. You give that whole group of people the ability, the same ability that everybody else does. And that is what real social equity would do. And uh, we don't have a public policy that actually supports social equity in this state. We have a lot of talk from politicians about it, but we don't have a policy that actually supports social equity for everyone. Well said. Well said. And uh, I want to get back to that subject. But first, let's talk. Let's let's put some proof into the pudding behind what you said. Let's listen to our governor describe what other states did wrong, what we did right from his perspective. In hindsight, a lot of states got it wrong on licensing because their programs ended up with the unintended consequence of a consolidated marketplace where only a few profit. And those communities that have been hurt are on the outside looking in. To start, for those who want to get a license, we're creating a designation for social equity applicants. But remember, um, one of the reasons that, uh, that we have had some challenges has been because we've been so focused on equity. 
Now, what I mean to say is I know that there are people who write about this, that there are other states that have opened up the number of licenses to hundreds and hundreds of licensees, uh, and they have more dispensaries open than we do. But the reality is that we've limited the number of licensees in part because we wanted to make sure that the social equity licensees had a fair shot in the industry and they weren't just edged out to the very end uh, and by you know having too many dispensaries in the market so that people can't make money, uh, entrepreneurs who open places like uh, Ivy Hall. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, in many ways, I, I think that the what you all uh, view as a, you know, as a slow plotting process is also one that uh, ends up with, um, you know, the, the right uh, um, regulation and the right laws in place and the industry growing at a pace that will allow social equity to take place within the entire cannabis industry, which is one of the purposes of it. Yeah, well, whatever. Uh all I can note is that what he describes as being problematic is exactly what is problematic with the cannabis industry in Illinois. They are using social equity to disguise the fact that they basically allowed what he says they opposed to happen in the beginning. And they are unwilling to challenge that directly. They're willing to say, well, we'll try to make up for it with social equity. But you know, they've given, they basically gave it away to a bunch of white folks right at the beginning. And what they need to do is to go back and re-examine that original decision, re-examine the whole decision to have a limited licensing process, because that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to sort of carve off a little bit of those limited licenses for social equity applicants. But that's not what's going to help ensure equity. What's going to ensure equity is allowing people to to make it on their own and to not depend on the government, you know, running a lottery for a very few people, relatively speaking, to have access to this industry. They need to throw it open so that people who want to go out and work for it to create wealth, not to use capital to create wealth but to work for it on their own. And, and that's what we need. We need an open system of licensing, like a driver's license. You meet certain basic qualifications that are relatively straightforward and accessible, and you get the license. And then you go out and you <laughs> grow dope and sell it. You know? Yeah, and, and the mechanism your taxes. Of, yeah, the mechanism of enforcement cannot be the criminal law, which is like the biggest exactly. thing that underrides limitations on licenses. When you yes. look at this system here, I'll display some of the penalties, the laws and penalties, which, by the way, for the most part, were established in 1973. All of these laws and penalties we're looking at were established in 78. Thank you. Uh, the Cannabis Control Act. Um, basically, the only thing that changed from the CRTA is is this here. And then, of course, medical patients can cultivate. And I want to take on a common misconception. Some people will read this and say, oh. If I grow five plants or less for personal use, I'll just get a $200 citation. Well, folks, if you're work, <laughs> I just have to say, if you're worth a lick of salt and you grow one plant, you're probably going to fall in this range when it comes to your possession. And if you look at what the penalty, and I would even maybe go here, 
depending on how they weigh it and when how early they weigh it when you get in trouble you could fall into this range and you're not talking just a $200 citation you might get the $200 citation but when you're talking possession you're looking at this and this is what defense attorneys tell me you need to be wary of this is where you're going to get in a lot of trouble um they might even hit you with sailor trafficking because it looks like they think you know they can that's the thing it all comes down to um uh, well, they get all, you with a sailor trafficking charge to get you to plead guilty to the possession charge. It would still be a felony. Yeah, it all comes <laughs> down to discretion is my point, though. You know, yeah, an officer could right. j- j- just say, well, this guy's obviously trafficking. Why would he need 2,000 to 5,000 grams? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um. So, folks, the here's my thing. Governor Pritzker tweeted this yesterday, and I'm not going to get into too much to what he's talking about, but he says that Illinois – is the home of an equitable legal cannabis system that does not disregard the injustices of the past. I think that's precisely what this system does. It does disregard the injustices of the past because of the fact that that all, yeah, all of these, Oh, sorry. Did you want to see that picture again? No, no. I just, I was just saying, if you leave all of this in place, you are not getting beyond the past. You are Thank you. preserving it. <laughs> this is from the past. So, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So until we take all of this away, and here's the thing. I think like for sale and trafficking, these are all criminal offenses. Okay, I think, buds, maybe we can agree. Maybe we can agree that if you're doing this without a license and you are possibly operating unsafely or whatever, maybe you do get a business offense. But it should never be something that ends up with you in a cage. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. If the same offense basically with alcohol is going to get you a fine, a business offense, something like that, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be the same or less for cannabis. Because alcohol is a far more dangerous substance, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, this whole criminalization that continues is a sign that we haven't gotten beyond the past, that we are preserving the past, that somehow we believe in the past, even though our words tell us, I mean, as he's trying to say, that we know better, why are we continuing on that path? And the reason is, is because we give undue influence to the police. They somehow still think that the police have something to do with this or should have something to do with this. And that's just nonsense. You know, uh, people can get written up, get a ticket, whatever, you know, have to pay a fine. But it, it is not something that is worthy of criminal charges in the, the manner that is still entirely possible. Yeah. And, and in fact, what, what happens with our legal market, particularly one where it's the highest prices in the country, is it makes Illinois the most attractive black market in the country. Right. And, and that's why I think, in part, that the state police want this is because they just see this as an opportunity for them to continue making uh, statistics that point out how badly you need us to continue fighting this drug war. Well, I think we need to tell them to sit down, shut up, and just accept the fact that society has moved on. And let's yeah. have the rules reflect that, not the past. Right. Yeah, and to your point, the reason a lot of these rules still exist 
and some rules were created, like the odor-proof container rule, which was mysteriously created during when legalization happened. As attorneys have pointed out to me, oftentimes those exact laws are what is used to violate your rights and ultimately seize your property, or as I like to say, steal your property. I think Joshua Sloan says that too. Um, Yeah, that's how, so that continues to this day. So they very much have an incentive to be able to continue doing this. It's literally how they get a lot of money for the department. It's, you know, they steal really nice cars and they can sell them at an auction. Um, I have heard them discussing who's going to get which car <laughs> back in the old this is one reason why it's encrypted because they don't want you to hear them talk about that not only extended the cars but the girlfriends which is just kind of wow. disgusting but yeah whatever <clears throat> but yeah that's that's what they don't want you hearing when they scramble stuff <laughs> yeah so i've been asking the people and i just came up with this question with shalene so I've been asking, did people forget about Hash Wednesday? And mm. I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that because I still think it's a valid question. Do you think in light of everything that still exists, maybe people forgot about Hash Wednesday? I don't think it's so much forgetting as people think that we're past that. Yeah. And Amen. I, I, I think that's wrong, but I'm not sure that Hash Wednesday would be the right method now to approach what we need to change things. We, we, we have the right to basically consume, to be consumers is basically all that they legalize. You got legalized as consumer, but not anything else. Yeah. Cause big, we needs customers and the state needs its taxes, but we need consumers. So that's why we have the very limited legalization that we have. Uh, but I, I think we need to, to to take on this whole notion that the government, governor is promoting that somehow we're getting past the past here. We need to pressure our representatives because this is something we can do openly now. You know, we don't have to be ashamed of being cannabis users. And one thing to keep in mind, too, about this whole tax situation because they take in more in taxes now on cannabis than they do with alcohol. But paying taxes gives you credibility, gives you an interest in how the system is operated, gives you the right to complain and to say, hey, things should be different. It legitimizes what is already legitimate, which is, you know, pressure to change bad laws but this really is something that we should keep in mind is that we do have the power to change this and we shouldn't tolerate it we should resist it and one way to do this is to start you know putting candidates i mean mostly it's democrats you know and because it's a democrat majority that's how things are the way they are there are republicans out there who support this although i don't know they've kind of moved on to other crazy stuff a lot of them but but i i can remember interestingly enough back back in the day tim johnson i wrote several letters back and forth to him and he was a supporter of doing something about changing the law so there are people out there there's libertarians out there there's people in the green party out there but 
primarily Democrats is where we should think about applying pressure. And that is to ask candidates, to ask office holders what their position is on things like universal homegrown, about opening up the license system. All these things are things that can be changed. And if they don't give you the right answers, and this keeps up, then we need to start running candidates against them in primaries because making this an issue is a winning issue. I mean, look at what happened in Ohio. And here in Illinois, it's certainly even more strong support. So why are we have keep electing people who want to keep so much of the past alive or at least are, aren't doing anything about that when they claim to be putting the past beyond us? There is room there for people to run on this as an issue. I mean, it won't be your only issue. You've got to have more than, than one issue to, to get public office, basically, I think. But, I mean, it's something that people can use in, you know, primary these folks is what it's called. And that's to take this issue and bring it up and to make it potent, to make them answer for that. Maybe to change their position, even if you don't win you may end up changing their position because they'll realize that the public supports something else other than just giving big weed the keys to the, the treasury and walking away from it and nibbling around the edges of social equity. We need real social equity so that everybody who has an interest, no matter what you know ethnicity they are, what their skin color is or whatever, but to make it possible, because there's a lot of African-American people I know that would love to start their own business. But do they have access? No. And they won't have access because the government is concentrating on making a few people rich by giving them a license, by making the license itself something of value. That is wrong. That is not the way to go. We should make what people produce to be what creates wealth around cannabis, not having some piece of paper from the government. I mean, that's just so wrongheaded. Uh, it's it's anti-American, first of all. <laughs> I mean, speaking as a leftist is not how we do things in this country. Yeah, and and that in itself makes it insupportable. But it's also the other thing too. Think about it: the family farm is an institution in this country. If we want to talk about things that appeal to conservatives and the conservative approach to thinking about things, what about the family farm? Why is the family farm banned for most practical purposes? With a med card, you get a little token allotment for your family farm, but it's very restricted. Mm -hmm. Why are family farmers boxed out of this? Because I, I think Josh was talking about this the other day, uh, about how there was a lot of support in the ag community for, hey, let's legalize this because, hey, that's going to make, we're farmers, we, we'll be able to grow this stuff, right? You know, and then guess what? No, you can't. <laughs> and all of a sudden, those folks have no real interest in, you know, in what goes on. Why don't we put it back on the table? That right there would get people on your side. And I think candidates stand a chance of winning, you know, whether in the Democratic primary or in the general election, if they play this card right. And I think that's what we need to start doing, because if the legislator, legislators won't change their position, won't do anything about it, want to keep the status quo, even if they claim they're changing it, 
then we need people in there that can describe how it's not being changed and how we will change the status quo to a better system. And I think that will get people's votes. Yeah. Well said. And uh, my last question, mm -hmm. if I brought back Hash Wednesday, would you come? Oh, heck yeah, I'd come. And just the, just for, for old time purposes, uh, just just to support the, the youth who will hopefully carry it on. Yeah, and the reason I would like to uh, do that is because I, I get what you say on your face on its face that we've gotten the right to consume taxable cannabis, basically. Yeah. But but I I think it would be an interesting protest to openly consume cannabis because nowadays it's just a yeah. citation. So it's not completely legal. We would still be yeah. risking citation, but it would get people's attention. First yes. of all, to the fact that, Hey, this protest is barely legal, let's call it. But then mm -hmm. second of all, that's kind of the point you get their attention by saying like, not only is this not legal, but growing it is not legal. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, mm -hmm. possessing certain amounts of it is not legal. And then you start to ask, is it really legal if all of these arbitrary, you know, lines exist? Mm -hmm. And I think that could be, I think that could be effective. And I, if you noticed, I didn't even bring up licensing. I think actually licensing yeah. gets, it gets to the point where there are too many interests involved. Yeah. And, and then, you know, people, big money interests start to, then they would start to argue against us. And we don't need mm -hmm. that. We want this to just be a conversation yeah. about, consumers and let's actually make it legal so yeah yeah i'm ch I'm chewing that idea around and it's cool to know well, that, uh, that you might support me if i brought it back well so. I, I think bringing it back i think it needs a location change yeah be because be of the smoke-free campus right well smoke-free campus yeah but it's not just a campus issue anymore it clearly is not and True. it's clearly not the case where only people on campus have an interest in doing something about it Maybe at the Capitol. That's what maybe, I was thinking, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. The maybe, you know, some other places it could migrate around, you know, depending upon there could be like regional sites for it and stuff. Uh, I can imagine a number of different places where a Ashland affair could could be effective in bringing focus on different things. Prisons, for instance, would be one place. Jail, local courthouses. True. I mean, you know, there's just these nexus all over the place of where the drug war continues. And, you know, calling attention to those would call attention to why are we spending money on this? I mean, it just does not make sense. I mean, what are you preventing? You know, uh, it, 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 it's a taxable thing if you are somehow breaking the law. But in terms of it being a criminal the justification for it being a criminal affair is pretty weak at this point. I mean, when you can go down to the store and buy it and what have you, when we're granting big corporations the right to do what it says as individuals would be illegal to do is questionable. Anything in defense of that is just something that it just, you can't be, packaged correctly to be convincing as a reason for the continuation of the criminalization of cannabis. It, it's just un, unlikely to be successful in the long run, but we need to start putting pressure 
on it repeatedly, continuously, to call attention to the fact that this is something that is intolerable in a society when we claim to have legalized it. Okay. I mean, most people are not out there thinking about splitting hairs over this. They're like, well, how many plants can I grow and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's what they think of as legalization, you know, and, you know, people, people, when they really think about it, will don't support this policy. The thing is, is that the government so far is counting on people not thinking too much about it by giving them, oh, you can go down to the dispensary and get your weed, you know, what have you. Well, you know, the the pricing thing, I think, is the thing that really has the most possibilities in terms of leveraging the average person into action sure. because it is something that they're going to be reminded every time they go down to the dispensary <laughs> until something changes. And and it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. There is no reason that is a good public policy reason for it being expensive as it is. And I can kind of see a little tiny sliver of the argument where like, oh, well, there's just too many around and people are going broke right and left. Well, that's what we have in business anyway. I think you've raised the issue of restaurants before. Yeah. Restaurants can go out and get a license. Many of them don't last five years. People move on. You know, there, there is, you know, the style, public taste, you know, what people want changes. The same thing with cannabis, you know. And if that happens, well, fine. I mean, that's not anything that the government should be too concerned about, uh, other than the fact that the, the system we have now is aggressively bad public policy. Yeah. It is. It undermines what it claims to achieve, and, and that's just bad public policy. Very well said. I could not have said it better myself. Well, Buds, I've had a blast today revisiting the subject of Hash Wednesday. Um, anything that we didn't cover today that, that you wanted to mention before we go? Well, I think we've we've talked about everything that I can think of right offhand. I, I, I just want to say that, you know, I, I played a relatively small role in this, but I, I also played something that supported basically where we ended up being which was it, it was more politicization than party and, and i think that's where it ended up and and that's a good thing because in our society we all too often just sort of go along with things we think democracy is something that happens when you step into the polling booth and that's it you know and then the next 364 days you don't need to worry about anything and, and and that's just not so if you want things to get better in our society and i think uh, the folks that worked on hash wednesday the folks that just showed up thank thanks to all of them because it did make a difference it showed that we weren't going away that you can't impose this on us and and that's important that really is uh, oppression breeds resistance and this was clearly oppression. We still have oppression. So resistance will still be bred. We just have to focus on where that resistance will take us, you know, because sometimes it can get a bit nihilistic. I mean, I, I read comments all the time on Illinois trees that, 
yeah, well, this is just the way things are or whatever. And it's like, no, it's not. And, but coming out and saying that it is kind of contributes to that, right. <laughs> I guess. Right. <laughs> why, why think that way? Let's think about things changing. It yeah. can be changed. It's not straightforward. It's not we're going to get there tomorrow, but it is important to work for better. Well said. Well, folks, I hope you found as much value in this episode of the Cole Memo as I did. Uh, Buds, similarly to the others, I just wanted to thank you for your service. So, Thanks. It's uh, good to be appreciated. We get comments from time to time like that, and they're always heartwarming. Uh, it, Because uh, there's, no, there's no retirement, <laughs> no pension <laughs> for being an activist <laughs> or whatever. I know I could have been probably financially better off in a lot of ways if I hadn't spent so much time being an activist. So things like that are the, the great reward that we get, and they are much appreciated. Yeah, again. Thank you. So folks, we will see you on the next episode. Take care. Buds, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to the next time we chat. Have a good one.